0: Hi, everyone, and welcome. You're listening to the MM MM&M podcast. I'm Steve Madden. I'm the editor-in-chief and general manager of MM MM&M. And once again, we're coming to you live from the floor of Health 2021 in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, My guests for this installment of the podcast are Susan Mamber, chief patient officer of Publicis Health, and Dave Nussbaum, chief data officer of Publicis Health. Welcome. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for being here. Um, so my first question is why does a network need, uh, why does an agency need both a data officer and a patient officer?
2: So I'll take that, um, a health agency needs an expert in health data, not only to understand the data marketplace, but also to bring together team members with the know-how to put that, put that data to work to solve actual problems for providers, patients, and their partners in the U.S. marketplace, providers and their partners have access to massive amount of very high quality patient level data. And so if you consider all other markets versus healthcare and where the, how the data is created and made, it's made by providers. So consider a pharmacist um, um, writing a uh, filling a prescription. Mm-hmm. The the quality of that data necessarily has to be perfect or near perfect. An error on the part of a pharmacist could be life-threatening. And all data is collected in the healthcare system the same way across all entities in in the continuum. And so the ability to aggregate those data and form hypotheses about um, what's happening and why it might be happening and what can be done about it, then executing against that and ultimately measuring and then optimizing all using real-world data is an incredible opportunity in the in the health marketplace
0: so that's that's the data side of it but what about the the uh, chief patient officer why why does an agency need a a chief
1: patient officer because data are people and we've been talking about human-centric care for a long time but the way to actually do that is to have a focus on making sure that we really are putting the patient at the heart of everything that we do. I had spent the last 10 years as Chief Strategy Officer of Digitas Health, one of our leading creative agencies, and in that role I had launched a number of drugs and partnered across the entire spectrum of therapeutic areas. And then I myself became a rare patient, a rare cancer patient, and going through that experience and now being on the other side where I'm able to take my professional experience and my personal experience to ensure that now, partnering with Dave and his team and using this unbelievable treasure trove of real-world data, we can start asking the human-centric questions that make the difference between understanding and being able to make real change. So how do you two work together? Every day. You know, it's (laughs) funny. If you had told me that Dave would be my new best friend at the beginning of this... We hadn't worked together that closely before. And so as I came up and began to explore and at the outset of the pandemic, the idea of how could we come together and really make use of this incredible data set of not just the real world health data, but now with our Epsilon acquisition for the very first time to be able to put that clinical data together with lifestyle data and understand from a real world segmentation what is really going in the marketplace. Because we know that as we diagnose people with different conditions, all too often clients are like, well, the diagnosed patient, that's our target. But by using this data, we can say yes, but there's actually seven or eight different kinds of patients. There's no such thing as an average journey anymore. Mm-hmm. So as we think about mm-hmm. how we craft content in today's world and engage people where they are, um, it's it's really the fundamental belief that we believe that engagement truly is medicine.
0: So what exactly does that mean? I mean, it's a great phrase. Mm-hmm. It's a great talking point. What exactly does it mean?
2: So consider any any area in health, like clinical trials, or driving adherence, medication adherence on the part of patients, driving new patient starts on therapy for pharmaceutical marketing. There are all kinds of reasons why a person might or might not raise their hand to get screened for a clinical trial. There's all kinds of reasons why somebody might not be taking their medicine, and so on. And so when when I look at the data, I can see that this happens, but and our, te- and our team is able to, to differentiate those people, according to their um, their healthcare behaviors, but understanding how to engage them because of those differences is where the where the data comes together with the creative and the and the media services, so that we can we can build out a defensible hypothesis that, as Sue said, there's six different patient types in the, that look the look identical clinically. How are we going to talk to them? Where are we going to talk to them? And how are we going to know if what, what we're saying is impacting change. And so when we tie data through that entire um, continuum, we're able to then understand what works for which patient types and what doesn't work for which patient type, improve patient outcomes, and lower the costs.
0: Any, um, any examples that you're able to share? I know that a lot of the work that you guys do is proprietary, but if there are examples, it would be, it would be really interesting to hear them.
2: So examples would include on the pharmaceutical marketing side, um, understanding that most of what lay people and patients see in advertising is an average patient, a persona. And now we're able to see that there are different personas, but it's not enough to know that there are different personas. We used to be able to do that in primary research. The The trick is knowing where they are in the wild and talking to them um, with regard to to their motivations and their behaviors and their concerns and their hopes and their fears and talking to them where they are right right
1: right so one of the things that we're doing of course is trying to tackle the adherence problem this Mm -hmm. is not a new problem but understanding what actually are the underpinnings to lack of adherence, and the differences between primary non-adherence when you just never show up to pick up your script Mm -hmm. versus those one or two times. We've seen the data forever on, you know, the average patient drops off, but really understanding why and then being able to put in focused interventions both with some of our retail pharmacy partners on the diagnostic side. So a good example might be diabetes, you know, affects 30 million Americans. Mm -hmm. Metformin is the generic first step into diabetes treatment. Most people though, if they don't have a deep relationship with a primary care provider and really understand what those first few weeks on therapy are going to be, well, you know what? There's some GI side effects. Three, four days in, you're not going to feel very, very well. You're taking a bunch of horse pills three times a day. Managing that is hard. So what we've learned is that for the cohort of particularly underserved who may not understand and drop off that experience, if we set the stage, if we set the expectations, if we leverage particularly pharmacists in those communities who can not just do what they're doing to dispense medication, but really operate at the top of their license to advise patients, oh, you're new to therapy. Around day four or five, you're not gonna feel so well. So let us serve up to you the right content and the right interventions to keep people on therapy.
2: And th- that's really well said. Um, I wanna add that although those, these kinds of programs have been in market for, for many years. They're, they're basically, they tactics that are put into the market. Let's, let's text message patients and remind them to get their med- medicine. It, it works to some degree, it works well. Refill reminder letters, um, all these tactics that have been around for years, they're helpful but they haven't solved the problem. We still see in the metformin example, even patients that do go and, and fill their initial script. The average length of therapy is less than two months. These are people that are supposed to be on therapy for the rest of their lives and diabetes and metformin are not alone. In, in this in this scenario and so understanding the behaviors that will that will impact different patient types but not just measuring them but measuring them finding out what what's different about the bis- different patient types according to how they responded to what was what was said to them allows us to refine and optimize all of these programs over time so they get smarter and smarter they're not just, A pilot. They're not just an ROI report that goes Mm -hmm. in a folder, and we start again with something new next year.
0: So we're sitting here uh, on the floor of a show that's uh, that's designed to bring health and technology together. And uh, you know, everything is health. Everybody's trying to get into it, uh, and everything is tech now. Um, So, what what are you guys doing at Publisys and on the communication side of the healthcare industry? To, to, do, to, to help that, that marriage continue, but also to help consumer uplift?
1: We think of it very much as the combination between technology, data, and creativity. It's great that I'm sitting here with my Apple Watch mm-hmm. tracking all kinds of content. It's wonderful that we're able to ingest Fitbit data and, and combine it back to that idea of the engagement as medicine. We know that the drug itself has its treatment effect. But if we understand how we can use these technology tools and get them to be able to be used by a broader swath of America, then we're going to have more impact. Somebody said yesterday, and it really stuck with me, that you know, to be provocative, right now a lot of the technology is being developed by the 1% for the 1%. And we have come together to say that's important, but not good enough. Right.
0: The the example I think that you're uh, you're citing um, was the, the idea that developers should not work first and foremost on an iOS platform because that's mm-hmm. to your point the one percent, but to work on a, a a platform that works on a burner phone, right, which is could could have you know a far more reaching mm-hmm. effect than than what you were talking about.
2: We also recognize and 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 try to talk about the importance of. Technology for sure, but the first thing we have to do is identify what problem we're trying to solve, how we think we're gonna go about solving it, what data supports the the effort, the time and the spend, what do we expect to happen, and then choose the suitable technology, either if it exists or, or build, after all of those things have been laid out first. And what we see often is technology leading and then trying to find a place, you know, to solve a problem, mm-hmm. and it has to go the other way.
0: Sue, so, uh, you were on a panel yesterday that MM and M sponsored um, to talk about uh, DE and I initiatives, and uh, and you said something that really struck with me, stuck with me about um, the zip code. Can you can you say that? It's great. It's Absolutely, great. Steve. Great
1: thanks for that. You know we. Of course, our big problem is so much data, not enough insight, but the reality is that despite all the advances in precision medicine, in genomic understanding, the power of the Human Genome Project telling us for sure there is only one human race, I can still today tell you more about your health outcomes by your zip code than by your genetic code, and we are out to change that. We've launched something that we're calling the Health Visibility Project, and the idea is that... Starting with deep understanding of multicultural insights is critically important, but it's not sufficient. You can't take somebody who's been working in the car market and suddenly have them understand deep, high science. At the same time, by partnering our people with that deep therapeutic and scientific knowledge with people with deep multicultural understanding and then pulling in the data, so we're thinking of it really as an agile consultancy model where we can, in a very bespoke way, come in and tackle a specific problem. I think the biggest thing that we've been talking about and why this is so powerful is we know that, you know, across the country, you know, we are talking about what, you know, south side of Boston would be, south side of Chicago, north side of Philly, but the what the underserved issues are, are different in each locality being able now to use our data to say, okay, we know that these are underserved zip code areas, but the issues may be different. Some areas it may be just literally about the density of having any access to any kind of care. If you're in a rural area, you could be 50 miles from a near center, but you might only be a few miles from a pharmacy. So thinking about, okay, what are the interventions we can put in place that might be different market by market? You might have seen a few weeks ago, Susan G. Komen came out with an analysis of the top 10 worst markets Mm -hmm. for outcomes for black women. Memphis topped the list okay, why? What is it? Is it the access to the health system? Is there something cultural? Is there something about the public transportation system? The food desert? What is it that actually makes that market particularly bad? And so if we can learn and really start to, and what we're very excited about, and I do think I'm a kid in a little bit of a data candy store now, because (laughs) for us to now really profile each of these zip code areas, and you know, people don't realize some of this data is government data that's extant. The MUA the medically underserved population areas, that's government-available data to ingest. So by analyzing that information and saying, okay, underserved is not the same thing. There's diversity within the diverse. What are the differences in these areas, these markets and cultures that we can tap into and then bring community services? So it's both community level and scale at the top.
0: So I want to ask you about that phrase, diversity within the diverse. Um, I heard a a speaker at a panel here talk about... um, you know, access to, to the Hispanic market. And somebody in the audience shouted, which one? Right.
2: right. So what we were talking about, there are different reasons for different patient types, not by race, not by income. So within a diverse population, you'll have five, six, seven different major areas of, of concern that need to be addressed. It's, it's not everybody has, you know, has this need. There are different needs and, and different motivators.
0: And, and zip codes break down by blocks. Absolutely. And blocks break down by apartment floors.
1: So it's That's house to that. house. One of the very first things I ever did in my career sticks with me. We were very proud. We were working with a hospital system in the South Bronx, recognizing that mammography was not happening in this population. So the idea was, let's bring it to them. It was one of the first mobile units funded by the NIH to bring mammography into the community. Well, great. We pulled up a big old NIH van with state-of-the-art and care and state-of-the-art technology. And guess how many people came? Zero. Snake eyes. So we realized, oh my God, we're sitting here in a predominantly Dominican Republic neighborhood. We haven't reflected this culture or community at all. So we changed everything of the experience. The technology didn't change one whit, but we brought in people from the community. We staffed with nurses to bring people in and speak in language. We even redesigned the fabrics and the hospital gowns that we gave people as they came in. And it was a huge success. So I love that example because it's so simple. You can get one small part wrong and not have the impact. But if you're willing to pivot Mm -hmm. and say, "Okay, so we screwed up. How do we fix it?
0: Again, meet them where they are.
1: Exactly. All right.
0: So, um, so, how can the data, you know, this, this whole conversation is about data. How can that be used to understand patients and doctors? Um, to to take it beyond the patient or the the HCP as a data point and consider them real people, because data is people in this instance of what we're talking about, right?
2: That, that's right. So we can look at we can look at the relationship between the patient and their doctor we can look at doctors uh, according to how they how they treat but we can also look at doctors as people match them to the epsilon data that we have access to which is thousands of data elements on nearly every u.s adult so if there's if there's explanatory data that helps us understand and predict how a doctor will treat their patients based on some of these data, it gives us deeper insight how to how to how to drive that that improvement. At the same time, we, we have methods to model out what patients would look like and what you know how how they will align um, and how they might respond to certain communication and interventions put into the marketplace. And we can look at those patients related to their doctors. So we have all this additional explanatory data that's just ripe. Like, like Sue said, get in the candy store, to start to reveal patterns that we haven't seen in
1: healthcare before.
2: What does that matter, Sue?
1: First of all, we talk a lot when it comes to physicians about you know white coat, blue jeans moments. And yeah, that's interesting. But what I'm really fascinated by is how, if we can understand doctor's lifestyle and what those triggers are, how does that impact them in terms of their treatment behavior, their prescribing behavior? Um, in my community, there's been a huge shift as in so many markets across the country where most of my doctors who used to have one office and one team now are covering three or four different offices and they have to travel to different locations and manage through different EHRs and the complexity of what their lives are is impacting how they treat patients. So the vision that we have is ultimately to be able to literally, if you can see the slide of the care styles across the top of the doctor segments, and then to truly profile each of them by their patient segments that's a richness of understanding and our chief medical officer coined a term a couple of years ago that I love which is so ultimately we it's not just DTC it's DTE direct to everyone that if we really craft our communications right then what we're doing is consistent with our clinicians as well as patients and that that changed the game because it fuels a different conversation
0: and speaking of conversation, we're almost out of time, but uh, I don't want you guys to get away without, uh, without finding out what you're seeing at the show, what you're seeing, hearing, that you think is, uh, is most interesting, most relevant, or surprising, besides the puppies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, Steve, the thing that surprised me the most is looking around at all of these panels and all of this richness, I believe I'm the only patient who served on any of the panels. We talk about patient centricity, mm-hmm. but we have been industry talking to industry. Mm-hmm. And I think harnessing patient voices is what, you know, I say my purpose is using communications to save lives. So making sure that as we're developing all these technologies and looking where industry is going, pausing for a moment and making sure back to data our people, they're still a patient and a caregiver and their clinician. And so point. that is my job is making sure that we harness the patient's voice in everything a really we
0: do. really Dave, how about you? What are you saying?
2: Well, if you think about how patients get diagnosed, how they get prescribed medicine, how they might enter a clinical trial, um, there, there are so many there are so many different ways to look at it, but what, what we're seeing here is, of you know, hundreds of technology companies, um, many of which have the same, same value proposition. So sorting through the, the different capability, oh, sorry, Sorting through the different um, technologies to to best understand where, where they may um, help in, in different situations is it's going to be a big process because to bring bring some of these uh, capabilities to market means that we would need to we would need to scale you know there's there's a lot that goes into any decision um, in, in a partnership opportunity like this the other thing I've noticed is very impassioned panelists in some of the conversations, um, really interesting discussion about the payer model, um, just about the role of PBMs, and the, I think the more we have conversation uh, about those items, the better.
0: I agree. So, I want to thank you both uh, for joining me. This was a great conversation. Uh, you've been listening to the mm and Podcast. I'm Steve Madden, General Manager and Editor-in-Chief of mm and My guests have been uh, the excellent Susan Mamber, Chief Patient Officer of Publicis Health, and the equally excellent Dave Nussbaum, Chief Data Officer at Publicis. Dave, Susan, thanks very
1: much. Thank you very much,
0: Dave. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back soon with another installation from Health 2021.